Well, thank you, Pete and Sandy, for that. It's amazing how music can just sort of take you somewhere. And that was very old-time gospel hour. Appreciate that. Just right to the south, right into the heart. And uh, I'm just excited to preach this morning. I'm excited to open God's Word. God's Word is the source of power. And uh, we, we enjoy the power of the resurrection. And so this powerful word that I hope comes to you this morning to your heart will inflame you with joy over the fact that he has risen. I'm going to take us to a chapter that's a lead in to the resurrection. And I want to invite your attention to John 11 this morning. We're going to be looking at a passage that I view as a application passage for how do we live the resurrection? How do we take the resurrection of Christ to our hearts personally? John 11 is about Lazarus being raised. And I think that's an interesting way to look at the resurrection this morning because Lazarus is a man just like you and I, human, earthy, a sinner who died. And Jesus chose to miraculously raise in his lifetime. He would have to die again, but he is a picture of resurrection to us, something that we'll experience personally. As believers, we're all going to be resurrected just like Lazarus was Raised, And so we need to learn about resurrection this morning. And we're going to learn in an applicational way. And as an object lesson, we're going to look at Lazarus being raised so that we can ask and answer the question, why is resurrection important to us? I mean, we believe it. We believe it doctrinally. We hold to it as our confession. We believe Jesus rose from death. And we understand that When Jesus comes back, we're going to be raised in some sense. But do we really hold dear the truth of the resurrection? And is it meaningful for our lives? Different ones were raised in the narrative of the gospel. The widow's son in the village of Nain. He was raised at his funeral. Luke 7, 15. Then you have the little girl the daughter of Jairus, that ruler of the synagogue, his daughter had died. And Jesus went into the house where she was laid down dead in her room. And he said, little girl, arise. And she rose, Mark five forty-two. Then you have our account in John 11 of Lazarus, who is raised the brother of Mary and Martha in Bethany, just two miles outside of Jerusalem. What's unique to Lazarus is that he was dead and in his tomb for four days, decomposing before he was raised. We're going to learn about that from our text in John 11. Then you have the fourth resurrection, which is Christ who raised himself from the dead. Jesus raised the widow's son, the little girl, he raised Lazarus and he raised himself. Now, the Bible also says in Acts 2.32 that the father raised him. Romans 6.4, the father raised him. But Jesus also is 
shown in scripture as someone who raised himself. He laid down his life and he was empowered to take it up again. The Holy Spirit, Jesus himself and the father rose Jesus from death. I think it's no accident in the gospel story of John that Lazarus resurrection is just before the Passover, just before the Passion Week, where Christ is headed to death and his resurrection. John wants the readers to think hard about Lazarus' resurrection in light of themselves, because Jesus is going to raise. So what does it look like for someone who's not Jesus to be raised, to be resurrected? This is a climactic miracle for Jesus in his ministry. It wasn't his final miracle, but it was in John's narrative, in John's account, the last miracle before Jesus is resurrected. And so it's to mark in our minds, what is resurrection? What does it mean that we will be raised? Jairus's daughter and the widow's son at Nain, they were immediately raised after they died And yet this resurrection is especially significant because Lazarus was in the tomb four days. It wasn't supposed to be able to happen. This was no resuscitation. It was unmistakably true that Lazarus had died, was decomposing, and then he was resurrected. Well, as we're going through this pandemic season... We're all sort of asking a question, at least I am these days. I'm asking, when is this season going to come to a close? When are things going to snap back to the way that they used to be? A lot of people these days are venturing out with masks on and they're getting used to social distancing. And perhaps in Alaska, we have the corner on social distancing being isolated up here, but In all truth of the matter, everyone wants to have something of what their life used to be. We want closure on this issue. We want things to relax again. We want to be able to interact. We want to be able to engage people in the way that we used to before. But if you're like me, some of this pandemic season has actually influenced your thinking a little bit about what matters in life. For instance, we've been able to have family dinners like we've never been able to pull off before, even days in a row sitting down together and laughing and enjoying ourselves as a family. We have some habits that are new because of the pandemic and the way that we're conserving and the way that we're managing resources. And some habits that I used to have, I don't want to resurface when the pandemic season comes to a close. Well, John 11 is an evaluative chapter. This is a a chapter that is supposed to engage your thinking in terms of what really matters and what doesn't matter at all. Habits or mindsets that you should let go of in light of Lazarus being raised from the dead. This is a chapter that challenges our thinking in terms of what is temporal and what is eternal, what is going to pass away and what will remain forever. It's a, it's a call for a reevaluation of your values. It's what Jesus is doing here. He's engaging the minds of those who are believers. The Jews had had their day 
engaging Jesus and many of whom rejected Jesus. They rejected his teaching. They didn't see him as the Messiah. They didn't understand that he was God in the flesh. They didn't embrace him as a savior. And that day had passed. There had been a new day that was dawning where Jesus now was moving into more of a secluded ministry a more specific ministry for his disciples whom he loved, people that he interacted with intimately. That's where we're going in John's gospel chapter 11. This is Jesus' ministry where he is teaching how we are supposed to engage the resurrection. How are we supposed to apply resurrection to our lives? I think one clear way that we're going to learn to apply the resurrection is to understand that our temporal goals in this life might not be Jesus' goals for our life. And that our temporal goals need to be seen and understood and embraced in light of Jesus' goals. Our goals need to be found within Jesus' goals. That's the way I want to frame our outline if you're taking notes at all. I'm using the word goals because I want this to be a concrete message. I want you to think in terms of how you really think about your life, how you how you value things in terms of what you live for. What are your goals? In verses one to 16, John writes of Jesus laying out his goals for these intimate believers to embrace and follow. That's what Jesus is doing all the time in his teaching ministry, by the way. He's always trying to reframe his hearers' goals, his disciples' goals, the people that he loved, their goals. And he loved these people dearly, the ones whom he loved. Let's look at John 13, 1. I just want to point out that phrase. He loved them to the end. That's at the end of verse one in John 13. These are the ones that he loved deeply and he had in his heart and he wanted their goals to be right. This is heart for all of us. Look at John 11 and follow as I read verses one to four. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary where her the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the son of God may be glorified through it. Verse four is a goal. Jesus is saying that I understand that someone is ill, ill even to death, but there's a greater goal. Mary and Martha, two sisters that lived in Bethany, a town just east of Jerusalem, was on the side of the other side of the Mount of Olives, two miles from Jerusalem. It's a different town than another town that's beyond Jordan called Bethany in the Gospels. This is Mary who had anointed Jesus, who would anoint Jesus's feet and wipe them with her hair. That's actually um, described in John chapter 12, the next chapter. This is Mary Magdalene. I take 
um, in this text. And you have Martha. Martha was the busybody who was too busy to sit at the feet of Jesus and is a getter dunner. You have two different temperaments, two different sisters, but both are centered on grieving over their brother who's ill to death. He's not dead yet, but he is right on the edge of dying and they're desperate. And so they send word to Jesus, probably a day's journey away. Jesus somewhere along Transjordan, a day's journey away for Jesus to come. They know that Jesus has healed people from sickness and given sight to the blind. And they may have heard of Jesus raising those ones I mentioned before from death. But they just, Jesus is their only hope as someone in their minds who is the Messiah, who has a deep connection with God the Father. So certainly he can heal Lazarus before he dies. And so they send for help. And so when the messengers came they said in verse three lord he whom you love is ill now obviously mary and martha loved lazarus because he was their brother but jesus loved lazarus as well he knew lazarus personally and even though jesus is loving lazarus and loving martha and loving mary you know what His goal is superseding even that intimate love. He has that heart for them. He has that heart for Lazarus's illness. But at the same time, he sees a greater goal of faith for Mary and Martha. Jesus' glory was to be put on display and not the accusers that are around him. There are people who are disbelieving him. There were people who were undermining his ministry. There's a threat that Jesus could be stoned to death or killed. None of this could diminish Jesus's glory, not rejection, not opposition, not sedition. So Jesus is to respond and go back to be there with Mary and Martha. But Jesus knows even at this point that Lazarus is dead. You see this in verse five. It says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Now, what is Jesus doing here? Jesus understands that God has a greater plan than just raising Lazarus from death. Jesus knows that he wasn't supposed to interrupt Lazarus' illness. This is all building to a greater purpose and a a greater emphasis, something that's a greater goal that he wants his disciples to see. He waited a couple days where he was so that Lazarus for sure would be pronounced dead. This can sound cold or cruel, but Jesus's concern is superseding the immediate. This is resurrection thinking. This is radical thinking. This is hard to take to heart, to think that even matters of life and death that concern Jesus in the moment are not always God's greater goal for us to grasp. 
We pray for people at bedside that we want to be healed. We pray for people who are stricken with cancer. We pray for those who are infirmed. And we ask God, what are you teaching us? Why won't you help us in this immediate moment? Where someone is sick, we want to be healed. But God's goals are not always your goals. And our goals need to be understood in light of his goals. In John 9, the disciples uh, looked at a blind man and said, who sinned, he or his parents, that he was stricken blind? And in verse 3, Jesus said, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Sometimes Jesus does heal. Sometimes he doesn't immediately heal, at least in this life, but he will ultimately. But Jesus is glorified. God is glorified through his perfect will. Jesus isn't a stoic. Christianity is not a stoic religion. We operate like Jesus operates, and we should. We want to obey God's will at all costs, no matter what it takes, no matter if we lose friends, no matter if people don't understand why we do what we do. God's revealed will calls us to do certain things that the natural man or unspiritual person will not understand, will not receive. First Corinthians chapter two, we preach a exclusive message that Christ is the only way to heaven. We love the Lord, our God, and participate with a community of saints, with believers that don't always make sense to our friends as to why we love them, why we give to them, why we serve each other, why we sacrifice. Why do you do what you do? Why don't you do certain things that the world calls you to do? It's because we are following God's will and people don't always understand God's will or God's goals for our lives as Christians and we do them anyway. And at the same time, we love our friends. We love our unbelieving friends. We love our unbelieving family. We love people. And we have a heart for them, but we're operating according to a greater goal than perhaps those people can even understand. And that's the same situation that Mary and Martha found themselves in when Lazarus is pronounced dead and Jesus did not come to rescue him before he died. What does Christ's love look like? Well, verse six, his love looked like him staying for two days longer then coming to an immediate rescue. This was to confirm Lazarus' death. This was so that no one could misinterpret Lazarus' death as him just falling unconscious or going into a coma or reviving suddenly in some sort of unexpected physical healing. No, this is Jesus. This is Lazarus who was completely dead to the point of decay or decomposition. Everything God does in our lives is to strengthen our faith. And this would have been a dramatic experience for Mary and Martha as they were just pondering things, working through it. Jesus, why didn't you come? My brother has died. I don't understand. John Piper, he said this. uh, I thought it was a great quote. God is always doing 10,000 things in your life. And you may be aware of three of them. Three of them. He's doing all kinds of things that we don't understand. Verses six through seven, Jesus' disciples question 
why Jesus would even go to Jerusalem at all. Look, Lazarus is dead. Why would you even go there anyway? There are people who want to kill you. And by the way, if we go with you, they will want to kill us also. Look at verses 6 through 11. It says, so when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And after this, he said to his disciples, let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. And are you going there again? Jesus answered, are not 12 hours in the day? Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is he saying here? He's basically saying that when it's my time to die, it will be my time to die. But if I'm walking in the light, the sunlight of God's will, I'll be protected. I'll be completely safe. But darkness will come. And at that point, I will stumble. I won't stumble while I'm supposed to be alive in this life ministering. But when the darkness comes, I will stumble. In other words, I will be captured. I will be killed. He's just walking in God's will. He's willing to go into the danger zone. He's representing the faith that he wants Mary and Martha to exude. To not just look at the whys and wherefores of circumstances that we can't understand, things that we're trying to grasp, things we're trying to wrestle with. Why are things the way that they are? Does that sound familiar with some of the narratives that are running in your own heart for this season? Why is it this way? When will it end? When will there be closure? Jesus is saying, look, we don't have to figure out all of those whys and wherefores. I'm just going right into Judea. I'm going right into Jerusalem right now, even into the danger zone. Because Jesus is dialed into God's greater goal. He understands that now he's supposed to go there. And verse 11 says why. He says, after saying these things, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought that he meant taking rest in sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. Stop there. Jesus is using sleep euphemistically just as a synonym. He knows that Lazarus is dead and he knows that he's there going there to raise him up. He's trying to see if his disciples will engage Jesus for who he is. Jesus is not just someone that could pray real good to a heavenly father with some sort of special line and special um, secret connection where he'd have healing power to raise Lazarus before he died. No, Jesus is able to, as God himself, raise Lazarus from death. He wants his disciples to catch on to this and believe in him and believe more deeply. Look at verse 16. He says, and for your sake, I am glad that I was not there. That sounds cruel. But again, God's goals are not always our immediate goals. Mary and Martha's goals, the disciples' goals might have been for Lazarus to not have died in the first place. But God's goals and Jesus's goals were greater. And his goal was for his disciples to grow in depth in their faith. That's why he did not go there right away. He says, I'm glad, literally happy that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. 
Look at Thomas in verse 16. It says, so Thomas called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now, a lot of people like to use this verse. I mean, several people I read like to use this verse to actually prop Thomas up and say, look, he, he doubted in the end. We get that. But look, he was really strong in his faith at this point. I don't agree with that position. I think Thomas is being sarcastic. I think Thomas is in a stage of he's a believer, but Lord, help his unbelief. He's not all the way tracking and tracing with Christ. In fact, Thomas is saying, look, we don't want you to go into the danger zone. We don't want you to go into Jerusalem. We don't want to be associated with you when you're going to be killed because we're going to be killed along with you. It's just like when the disciples later on would scatter at Gethsemane. They'd scatter and Peter denied Christ three times after Peter said, look, I'll go with you even to the death. And Jesus said, no, before the cockroach, you're going to deny me three times. Thomas is doing the same thing here. He's saying, let us go that we can die just like Lazarus died. Hey, let's join the club. Let's go right there with him. And Jesus is saying, no, this is not okay. It's not okay for me to leave you, Mary, Martha, Thomas, disciples. It's not okay for me to leave you in this stage of your faith. I want to bring your faith to a rock solid level before you go to a new stage of needing to believe in me because I won't be present here. He was going to be raised. He was going to be at the right hand of the father. And he knew that. So he needed to solidify their faith through a trial, through a difficulty, through something they could not understand. I can't understand why you would let Lazarus die. Why did you stall going there to him? Why would you do that? All of that was to strengthen their faith, to get them over the hump what he's doing. God's goals are not always our goals, but our goals need to be threaded in line with God's goals. This leads us to another point. You have Christ's goals. That's point one, Jesus's goal. And now point two, here's Martha's goal. What's Martha's goal? Let's learn about Martha. Verse 17. Now, when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha had Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Let's stop there. This is Martha's sentiment. Martha's sentiment is just like Thomas, his sentiment. Martha's goals were immediate, were concrete, and clearly surrounding her brother's death. And even the unfortunate sad outcome that Lazarus had died. This was all right near Bethany, as it says. The tomb would have been right there, right outside of the village Bethany, two miles from Jerusalem. And that's the scene where Jesus is approached by the sister, Martha. It had been four days. She was still grieving They were grieving in a household with Jews who were mentioned here and they're the hired grieving grievers service that would come and help people 
weep over the loss of, loss of a loved one. It's like grief counselors who would come in. It's like going to a funeral and at the end of the funeral, there's the PowerPoint presentation with the music underneath. And you're seeing all the photos and you just naturally want to cry. Even if that person wasn't intimately close to you, you just break down and cry because of the emotion of it all. Well, that's what the grieve, grieving people were doing. That's what the Jewish custom was to have these hired professional grievers. All of this the idea of grievers, the idea of a, a tomb, which is a, a cave sepulcher, which would have had a stone rolled in front of it. Uh, they were tombs that were hewn with steps and, and shelves for um, family members to be buried together. And all of these things, having grievers, having a tomb, highlighted the wealth that this family had. But none of that really mattered. Money didn't matter at that point. You have Martha who runs out to her Lord with mixed emotions, with, with sobs of exasperation, saying, why, Lord? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. She knew that. She was strong in her faith at that point, and her get-her-done-her spirit running out showed that she wanted to just go right to Jesus and go face-to-face with him on that. She went out to see him and Mary, her sister, went home. Two different temperaments. They both have the same mindset. If Jesus had come, this would not have happened. Martha, the getter-dunner, the doer, runs out. Mary, who's stuffing things in and isolating, is pondering this in her mind. But Martha had no idea what Jesus was about to do. She didn't understand in her conflict, her conflicted spirit. So if you pick this up with verse 22, but even now I know, this is Martha's words, I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. She wasn't asking for Lazarus to be raised from death, I don't think. I don't think that was really even in a frame of reference because in her frame of reference because Lazarus had been in the tomb for four days. She's just continuing on emoting that Jesus could ask the father for things. Some good could come of this perhaps. She's not fully recognizing that she's face to face with God himself. It's kind of hard to grasp. I think all of Jesus' disciples, they, they had illumined Holy Spirit faith where they were giving their lives in full yielded submission to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. They were believing him as the son of God, but then there would be some disassociation with the fact that Jesus is fully, fully God in the flesh. That Jesus is God, very God, someone who holds the keys to life and death. I don't think Martha fully grasped that at that moment doesn't believe that Lazarus could be raised immediately from death because Martha begins to go back to her theological training. If you see this, Jesus had said to her, your brother will rise again. Verse 23 and verse 24, Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. I know that's going to happen. I get it. I went to Sunday school. I understand that Jesus is going to raise people up in the last day. We're going to see him again. I get it. I get it. But Jesus is trying to get Martha to see who she's talking to. 
Look at verse 25. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. The real issue is that God is talking to you, Martha. Jesus is saying, I am. This is Exodus 3 language where God met Moses through the burning bush and said, tell Pharaoh, I am has sent you. Tell Pharaoh, Yahweh has sent you. That was Jesus through the burning bush saying, I am. That was Jesus here. This is the fifth I am statement out of seven in the gospel of John. Jesus is saying, I am. I'm the self-existent one. I am the one who was, who is, and is to come. I am eternal God. Before Abraham was, I am. I am the way, the truth, and the life. There's no one that come to the Father but through me. I am. I am Yahweh. I am here. I have always been, and I am the resurrection and the life. I hold the timetable in terms of Lazarus resurrection. It won't just be at the end. It could be right now because I am. Do we realize that we are in fellowship with the I am who is called the resurrection and the life that we live in relationship, in communion with Christ who was raised, who lives in us as the I am. He's the one that is the focus more than Lazarus should be Christ at this moment. He's saying, look at me. Think about me. This is Jesus making his point. All things are possible with Christ. You know, getting this right, it might not make the pain of life go away. Understanding that Jesus is the I am. When that understanding does not yield an immediate pragmatic result that we want as our goal at our time, in our timetable, in our lifetime, when we try to put those two things together, we still might suffer some heartache, some conflict. How hard is it to yield to the I am, to Jesus Christ and say, look, not my will, but your will. I I wanted things to work out this way. I wanted this person not to be sick or this person not to die or for this not to happen in my lifetime, but it did. How hard is it for us to yield ourselves face to face with the I am Jesus Christ and say, you are Lord, you are the resurrection, you are the life. It's very hard. It's very difficult. It's so difficult that Jesus allowed Lazarus to die, to be entombed so that Mary and Martha would understand this point that's how hard it is but this is jesus goal wasn't martha's goal but it was jesus goal he wanted martha to let go of this life and to fully embrace the life of jesus let's look at point four mary's goal we've looked at christ's goal then martha's goal now we're looking at verse 28 and following Jesus, I mean, Mary's goal. Verse 26 says, everyone who lives and believes he shall never die. Do you believe this? This is Christ's goal. She said, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is coming in the world. That's Christ's goal. That's him focusing Martha rightly. And I think he got Martha where he wanted her to be in terms of her belief. 
So now we can turn his attention to Mary. Here we see in verses 28 to 37, here's Mary's goal. It says, when she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him when the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. This is Mary's goal. This is Mary's goal. This is her grieving and her being conflicted in the same way Martha was, believing there had been an injustice because Jesus did not immediately come. This is Mary's goal. Look at verse 33. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. And Jesus wept. Verse 35. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Hey, what's going on here? First of all, you have Mary. This is Mary Magdalene, who's a follower of Christ, who had had seven demons cast out of her by Christ. She was a woman of the city who had been forgiven much, and so she loved much. She was the one who was going to anoint Jesus's feet with her hair. She is a follower of Jesus Christ, and yet she is struggling and doubting with the same skepticism that Thomas had had, that Martha had, and now she has, and she's weeping. Well, within that weeping, Jesus also weeps. He's not heartless. He's grieved over the sadness of death, the sting of death. Death is a wrong in our world caused by sin. It's horrible. It's ending. It's, it's the stage in life where all you want is that person that you've lost to come back. Jesus understands that. But he's also, I think, indignant. It's interesting because we know Jesus is going to bring Lazarus back from death right there immediately. So verse 33 says he was deeply moved and greatly troubled. What does that mean? Deeply moved means he was, he was wrestling with being indignant in the moment. He's spontaneously crying over their lack of faith. He's observing Mary and has observed Martha and others Grieving without hope like pagans do. First Thessalonians four thirteen. He is sad over the situation, but he's also sad over their lack of faith. Verse 38 moves on. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again. What does that mean? Does that mean he goes into another stage of crying like unexpectedly? No, he's moved again. He's sad for the reality of death. He's sad for their lack of faith. And then he's moved again to say, okay, now it's time to do something about it. It's time to display the glory of God. And this is my final point. This is Jesus' goal, again, for his friends to go deeper in their faith. 
Look at this. It says, then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. This is the sepulcher. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor for he has been he has been dead four days. The King James Version is hilarious to me now. Uh, This is Martha's words in the King James Version here are Lord, by this time he stinketh. He stinketh. I know you're laughing on the other end of the camera, but it's true. His body was decomposing. They were not thinking in terms of who Jesus really was and what he could do. Verse 40, Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? In other words, engage who I am, see who I am in this moment. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. What does that mean? That means that Jesus, though calculated, though operating according to the Father's will, he was in passionate communion with his father the whole time. Okay, Father, I need to stay for two days. I know Lazarus is going to die. I know that Martha and Mary are struggling and wrestling through this. He is intercessorily praying for his friends. Lord, help their unbelief. Help them to get it. Help them to see me for who I am. Help them believe. That's my goal for them. This is Jesus' prayer for you as you struggle through whatever you're going through. This is Jesus' heart for you. He's not going to give you closure in the way that you want closure. He wants his goals to overwhelm your goals so that you grow in your faith. That's what's going on here. And that's what he's doing. But he's in direct communion with the father. And the father now is saying, go raise Lazarus now. Do this thing. Verse 43. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound and with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to him, unbind him and let him go. He came out like a hopping mummy. Though he had been decomposed, he was completely reconstituted. Now, Jesus is called the first fruits of the resurrection because he's the first one to be raised who would never die again. That's going to be our resurrection. Lazarus' resurrection has been called a resuscitation, though he actually died. He's brought back to life, but he's going to die again. But his sisters undoubtedly rejoiced and loved their brother. That restoration in chapter 12, it shows that six days before Passover, they're in Bethany, they're with Lazarus, Mary and Martha are, they're reclining at a dinner table, verse 2. Lazarus is there and people are wanting to see Lazarus because they knew he died and they were believing in Jesus because Lazarus had died, but had been brought back to life. John chapter 11, verse 45, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. These are God's goals. In essence, the miracle of Lazarus was not the point. The point was that people would believe in Jesus and see Jesus as the I am, the resurrection and the life. How hard is that? How hard is it for us to reconcile temporal goals that are meaningful and real with God's greater plan? It's very difficult. It takes 
True faith and deep faith. Faith that will stand up in any trial. Just to conclude, I want to turn your attention to the end of the Gospel of John. John chapter 20 was read from earlier. But look at verse 11. This is Mary Magdalene. This is the same Mary, the sister of Martha, who's standing outside of Jesus' tomb. This time, instead of Jesus weeping, she's weeping. It says, Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb. She needed the faith lesson that she had just learned to face the fact that Jesus had risen. And she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. And they said to her, woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, they have taken away my Lord. I do not know where they have laid him. She's still wrestling with the reality of Christ's resurrection. Verse 14, having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, do not cling to me. She's clinging to him again, just as she had grabbed Jesus's feet before. She's clinging to him. Jesus says, for I have not yet ascended to my father, but I go to my brothers, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my father. And look how she, he includes Mary at this point. I'm ascending to my father and your father and to my God and your God. Just as I'm resurrected and going to ascend, you're going to be resurrected and you're going to ascend. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I've seen the Lord and that he had said these things to her. Are your goals God's goal? Jesus is the resurrection and he is a life. And I don't know what in particular you're having to work through and how you're having to apply this, but embrace Jesus for who he is on the level that he calls you to believe in him. Not just a cursory belief to believe that you're saved, but to truly dedicate your life and your life's goals to him. Don't be the same, even through this trying time. Don't be the same. Be transformed believing in Jesus as the resurrection and the life.